I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, Hopefully everybody is doing okay. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about the Irwin Brothers' I Can Only Imagine, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, I wanted to say this. All right. Um, I put out on Twitter a few days, uh, maybe two weeks ago, actually, um, hey, does anybody have any ideas for episodes? And somebody (laughs) mentioned... Uh, I can't, I couldn't quite tell their frustration level, but they said, Hey, how about all those, uh, episodes that you're supposed to do as a function of the, of the Kickstarter, uh, for my book. And that is a very good point. And it, and it caused me to realize that I had not addressed that. Here's the situation. Um, <laughs> okay. So I had, uh, for those that don't know, about a, a well over a year ago, I did a Kickstarter for my book, Worth Watching, which is currently available for $15, so you can go and get that. Um, and part of the rewards involved people, uh, you know, those that contributed, they could ask a question and I would answer it on air, uh, or they could recommend a movie that I would talk about on the show. And I answered some questions and I... and. Uh, very few people actually sent in questions or movie uh, movie recommendations, and so. Um, but I did write down everything, and I kept it in a file. And then I took that file and I put it on a thumb drive. And then Jen and I moved. I cannot find this thumb drive anywhere. I'm very sorry. And I also changed my email account uh, since then. And so uh, my old, I went into my old email account looking for stuff, and it, a lot of it got wiped. And so here's the situation. If you, uh, if you contributed to the Kickstarter, um, then feel free to email me, tyler at morethanonelesson.com, uh, any kind of question that you would want me to answer on the podcast. Um, and then, uh, a movie that you think, uh, I should see and that you would like to hear me talk about on the show. Um, the only one that I can remember is the movie stalker, which sadly I still have not seen. Um, and some of the, you know, they can be movies that I, that, you know, I've seen, but I haven't talked much about or something I haven't seen and you think I would really like or not like whatever it is. Uh, that's fine. So if you did contribute to the Kickstarter, uh, more than $5, then uh, please do, and, and you are interested in this kind of thing, email me, tylermorethanonelesson.com. I'm sorry that it took so long to get to this, uh, and as time went on and I was in school and all that, it just slipped my mind, and then it literally slipped through my fingers and I had no access to the information anymore. So uh, I do apologize about that um, because I don't want people to feel uh, ripped off uh, for contributing to the Kickstarter. So anyway, okay. 
Uh, so also before we get to the topic, I wanted to say this episode is sponsored by Faith Life TV, a streaming service that features movies, short films, documentaries, sermons, and more. Currently available on Faith Life is The Submerging Church, a documentary about recent developments within the American church that focus more on doctrine than on scripture. It is a potentially controversial film about the emergent church. Now, I actually started watching this. I got about a half hour in. The movie's fairly long. It's like two hours and 15 minutes. And here's what I'll say. It is in-depth, <laughs> and it is well-researched. Uh, now, of course, within that, the research is still interpreted. Um, you know, people looking at certain comments by certain pastors and saying, hey, maybe this is uh, uh, not totally biblical, these attitudes. And so that's always up for interpretation. But uh, it was, you know, everything is well-cited uh, on it. And so it's, uh, it's definitely more informative than, than it is uh, cinematic. But uh, it is interesting um, because something I've become fascinated by over the years is just the, what the American church is, what it's become and the amount of anger that there is within the church against itself. Uh, usually as a function of politics. Um, I know that somebody the other day on Facebook, a uh, former teacher of mine actually uh, posted something political and it said, you know, explain that to God. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't have the energy for this. And so, um, so yeah, uh, so that film is called the submerging church. It is available, uh, at faith life TV and you can watch that and dozens of other films, uh, just, and you can get your first two weeks for free. If you go to more than one lesson.com and click on the faith life logo after that, it is only four ninety nine a month. Okay. Now speaking of Christian film, Every year, I'll get to my co-host in a minute, and it's not Josh, which is, I'm sure he's thrilled. Josh was usually my go-to for Christian film, but, uh, and don't worry, there's still a third God's not dead, and he's going to be the one to watch it. So, um, every year at the International Christian Film Festival, um, I will give my talk, and then I will go to my table and, you know, hawk my wares and that sort of thing. So that book that I was telling you about, um, and people will come up and they'll say, I totally agree with you about Christian film. It could be so much better Then there's, this doesn't happen all the time. It happens a lot. And there's a pause and they say, have you seen this? Okay. And it's usually whatever the whatever the bigger Christian film is. Sometimes they'll, they'll mention a smaller one that I haven't even heard of. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll give that a, I'll give that a look. Um, but it's, it's usually stuff like war room or, uh, you know, the Irwin, Irwin brothers. Uh, uh, I don't think it's their last film, but from a couple year, a few years ago, um, uh, Woodlawn, which actually is a movie I, I, I think is pretty good. Um, but yeah, people always say, I agree with you. Christian film isn't very good, but have you seen this? And so this year, at the International Christian Film Festival, people came up and said, have you seen I Can Only Imagine? And at the time, I had not. I knew that the film had done shockingly well at the box office. It had made like $85 million, which is, you know, I mean, you know, War Room had made like 60, God's Not Dead had made like 45, and those were considered huge successes. So this making $85 million being very high up in the, it wasn't number one, because of course, came out around the same time as Black Panther, but, um, 
but I think it was like number two or three uh, that week. And I think it, it hung out in the top 10 for a little while and people were just raving about the film. And so uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it. And then finally I decided that it has a high enough profile that I should. And so that is uh, what we'll be talking about today. Uh, but I will bring in my co-host, Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Tyler. How you uh, doing? Not bad. Good. Now, here's the thing. Not that we need necessarily need to go into this in depth, but uh, as stated, my go-to guy for <laughs> Christian film has been Josh. I don't know why. It happened because for a while he was my only co-host. Hmm. Um, and then I think after a while I just kind of enjoyed uh, putting him through this stuff. <laughs> but no, that sounds mean. It ultimately was just like I wanted somebody who would who were who was watching these movies at the same time I was so that we could kind of t- uh talk about how they've changed mm, and potentially mm-hmm. improved over the years so you know when Josh and I talked about uh the case for Christ or believe me we at least had a shared experience of the movies that had come before sure uh and yeah. that sort of thing so uh so yeah Josh is sitting this one out uh <laughs> partially because when I planned it, uh, he had travel plans that I think he's care He's, he's going through with. It was, it's a, it's been a mess, uh, with him over there anyway. Uh, but yeah, so what is your, what is your history with, with Christian film? Oh, I've, I've seen as many as I could get my hands on. <laughs> so you had a podcast and a reason to watch these. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a family with which I loved watching movies and, and my mom and dad really, I mean, they really enjoy these these Christian films, and um, you know, I, the, and I I understand. So, if there was the go to movie night, I will never forget uh, how exuberant they all were about the first God's Not Dead, and wanting so desperately for me to see it. I'm sure you get this experience at the International Christian Film Festival or any really multiple other places that you may be, where it's not only just the Have you seen this, but it's almost like they they know that you that you're a critical mindset that mm-hmm. you enjoy that and so they're like oh but you wait till you hear the writing on this or like wasn't that great writing yeah. isn't that performance wonderful and everything yeah. and so you're sitting there in this in this situation where you're forced to sort of make commentary about a movie you're watching for the first time. <laughs> At least that's the shared experience in my home, um, not with my wife and son, because my wife feels uh, at least the same as I do about these, if, mm-hmm. if, if anything uh, can sometimes be slightly uh, harsher towards it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like with all films, uh, not just with the sort of the Christian subgenre or anything else, I feel like I try to be fair not only about what the film is and is not doing effectively but what it's trying to do oh yes and i do think that there are entries in the christian film subgenre that are more effective at what they're trying to do regardless of whether their objective quality is higher or lower compared to cinema in general um and then there's some that just don't work at all like they're they're just not very good at what they set out to do and they're not very good as films in general um and then i am starting to see more that tilt me a little bit more into the like that was an that was an earned moment, mm-hmm. if 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 you will, um, or some moments where I'm sitting there and I'm genuinely moved and affected by what I'm seeing. Um, so yeah, there's I do feel like in general 
there are filmmakers out there who are becoming aware of the fact that there's there's an, a rising plane that they need to um, sort of step up the game, as it were. Yeah, and you know, one of the interesting things about watching as many of these films as I have, and there are so many more. I mean, if you look at if you were to subscribe to Pure Flix and you mm-hmm. see the sheer number of movies they have available, you're like, how how are there yeah. so many of these? Yeah. Because I've seen the, I apologize for cutting you off, but I've seen like, I don't think I actually directly answered your question. Like I've seen, uh, the first two God's Not Dead's I've seen, you know, believe me, I've seen Mm -hmm. all the ones you referenced. I loved Case for Christ. I Mm -hmm. saw like genuinely, not even just like, oh, for the, this thing, it's great. Um, so Case for Christ, uh, I've seen probably my least favorite of the bunch would be a film, a little film called WWJD. That's, that's the title of the film. Yeah. Uh, and of course it's the acronym for what would Jesus do? Those, mm-hmm. those bracelets and everything. Um, that is probably the weakest of any okay. of them that I've seen, but I would say all told, uh, to put a number on, I've seen maybe 20 to 25, like explicitly Christian based yeah. films. So, which anyway. is probably more than I have seen actually. Uh, oh. I think I've probably seen, I don't know, 15 to 20 probably. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. um, and yeah, but the one of the good things about watching all of them, and I should say that uh, in that book, worth watching, available for fifteen dollars <laughs> at morethanonelesson dot com or worthwatchingbook dot com. Um, uh, the last, the last thing in the book is uh, an essay that I wrote for school mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. when I was at UCLA uh, about Christian film emerging as a genre in in every sense of the word, not just a categorization mm-hmm. uh, like drama or comedy, but but genre like science fiction, western, yeah. film noir, zombie, with its whatever. own conventions, its own yeah. its own visualizations, its own themes, its own character types, and it's so it's inter- it, it's interesting to look at that academically, but it also gives you it it provides you with perspective. For mm-hmm. example. I don't really enjoy the films of Alex Kendrick, uh, mm. who made, what is it? You got your flywheel, flywheel, and fire, then fireproof. fireproof. No wait, flywheel facing the giants. Oh yes. Then yeah. fireproof, fireproof. Courageous, courageous war room. Okay. I've only seen three of those, but, uh, I didn't love them. Mm. And so I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to go back further. So it's like, <laughs> Oh, so it's those, but with no budget. Oh, good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't really like those movies very much. But then I see God's Not Dead, mm. which is in some ways technically better. It clearly has a better budget. It has, mm. you know, name actors in it. Uh, but it does come down to this idea of intention. Mm. And I think I respect the intention of Alex Kendrick infinitely more than I do uh, the people behind God's Not Dead because I think he clearly is trying to he's writing movies from his heart and movies about what it is to be a husband and a father and really trying to break it down as best he can. I don't think the movies are very good, but there is something to be said for that. I really agree with that in respect to courageous. Courageous is my favorite of those four. I think mine too, probably. And, uh, it probably has something to do with, with the fact that I, I saw it after I had newly become a father. And so, and, and so there was something, sort of tapped into that whole sensibility. Sure. Um, but I like the way you put that, that he does he does seem to be a lot more, I don't know if sincere is the right word, but there's an authenticity Authentic- to, yeah. 
to what he's trying to do that that yeah. I don't really get that from God's Not Dead series. God's Not Dead seemed to want to tap into something political mm. Uh, mm. or cultural, whatever you want to say, uh, and tap into a certain anger mm. uh, yeah. on the part of uh, American Christians. And even if it's something that I think we, ha- even if I were to say we have reason to be angry, mm-hmm. I would say that's not a good instinct. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I definitely understand what you mean as far as intention. Yeah. Uh, intention, of course, doesn't necessarily mean the film is going to be good. But uh, like I said, when you watch enough of these, you'll discover that, well, sometimes some of them don't even have the right intention. So (laughs) I'll, I can at least be happy when they do. (laughs) Um, so we'll come around to, I can only imagine, which is based on a true story Mm -hmm. of, uh, Bart. I forget his last name. I think it's Millard. Uh, something like that. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I only wrote down Bart in my (laughs) show notes. Um, of course I have a different association with Bart whenever I see that. So Simpson. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yes. Uh, I was like, bar the public transit system in uh, San Francisco? <laughs> right. Um, that's the one. Yeah. So uh, he's the voice of Bart the transit system in San Francisco. Um, and so, yeah, it is. Uh, he's the writer of the song, I Can Only Imagine. Mm-hmm. And his story is an interesting one. I guess. <laughs> and here, and here we come with, here we go with some of my issues with sure, the film. Sure. Um, you know, uh, when Josh and I do these, we do try to stay positive at first and then talk about, you know, mm-hmm. the stuff that, that bothered us. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, Bart was raised in a, in a house with a, a drunken, abusive father. Uh, and he, and he got out of that environment and, tried to become a, a singer songwriter and uh, had some middling success. And then this song came along and really uh, did very well. And yeah. it did well, not merely with Christians, but with non-Christians as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and then along the way, his father became uh, a Christian and uh, sort of changed his ways and their, and their uh, relationship was mended and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it's very much the the film is and the story is about the the conciliatory nature of faith and the idea and the power of forgiveness and and the the fact that forgiving somebody even before they want to change can actually inspire them to change. Right. And so I think that's really interesting. Um, and then thematically, this one of the things that that I latched on to because I was thinking about talking about, you know, father figures, but I already talked about that with Andrew Clavin with, uh, fences mm, and yeah. the great Santini. So I want to talk about something else here, which is the idea of what do you do with your pain? Mm, um, mm-hmm. and so we'll talk about that with this film and we'll talk about it with the companion film. But, um, but yeah, first I want to say, you know, what, what, what I like about this film. Um, and, by and large, I would say I don't really like the movie that much. I don't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't find it that effective. Mm-hmm. It has yeah. a couple moments here and there that yeah, I, there that was I really one, liked. There was one that really got me that I'll get to in a few minutes. But yeah, but but it's it's a 
at best, I'd say a serviceable film mm-hmm. for me, um, which is still, you know, better than a lot of other Christian films. Yeah. And I would say technically and artistically, it is on the same quality level as the case for Christ. And I think they, I think they're locking into something here with this biographical stuff, yeah. um, by, uh, by making these biopics of, of real life figures within the church. Um, I think that's, it's not a bad instinct. Yeah, um, I agree. So then it, sorry, I was about to go into what I don't, what sorry, I don't like. Yeah. So, so what I'll say is that, uh, before I actually, before I get into the specifics, I'll ask you, what did you think of the movie? And if you liked it more than I did, that's perfectly fine. It sounds like we're kind of on the same page in terms of our general responses to it. Um, there, there were a couple of moments in it where I found myself, uh, you know, very moved and against like, and, and, uh, without having to work myself up into right. it, I didn't necessarily feel manipulated. The moment itself was a bit on the nose, but was genuinely very effective for me where it interplayed him. Uh, I don't know how deep we want to get into spoilers. There's not very many things to spoil about this. Yeah. Film. It's, and it's um, not that type of movie. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Even if you were told the moment would still probably grab you. Yeah. Um, the moment that he's being told about his musical ambitions mm-hmm. and he, he hears echoes of what his father told him. So yeah. they'll say something like you're not good enough. And then he will immediately, it will immediately take him back to that moment when his father was telling him a very similar thing, sometimes mm-hmm. in a much harsher way. Um, and then they would, they'll, they're not intending to belittle his dream. They're trying right. to give him a dose of reality. And that word reality triggers him to something his father said about, you yeah. know, what's real in the world. And you got to hold on to what's real and everything. And I found that moment as a whole, uh, very emotionally arresting. It mm-hmm. was really, um, I, I teared up a little bit. I could, I, they were, I was really with him mm-hmm. in that moment. Um, this is, I believe the, the actor who portrays Bart, this is, I think his first film. I think so. Yes. Um, and in some ways it shows a bit, but I think, and, and that this is going to feel like a backhanded compliment. I think he does a way better job with it than I would expect this being a first time yes lead in a film to do i would agree it's still i was not surprised to find out that this was his first film but knowing that it is his first role uh, or first major leading role um I, I think he did a really good job and when you realize that he has to act in a few scenes he has to act opposite somebody like a dennis quaid who's a seasoned actor absolutely yeah and he's a seasoned actor playing a one could say a juicy role of yeah. like yeah. drunk and abusive father. So it's like lots of opportunities to overplay it. I think occasionally he does. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, that so a first time actor act you know working opposite that could could have been completely swallowed up. Yeah. But he's not like he does. He holds his own, holds his own mm-hmm. and you you feel like this is a two person scene, not one person and. Someone else who's on screen, I guess. Sure. Right. Um, so yeah, I think his. Uh, if if I was told that it was not his first film and that he's just a, a lesser known actor, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Like yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's not an astonishing performance, but it's certainly given what we've seen in some Christian Absolutely. films. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it definitely is more professional. Absolutely. Uh, and more relaxed on screen than I'm used to seeing. It's yeah. not a very self-conscious performance, which I like. Yeah. And that's one thing that I always notice in, like you mentioned the Kendrick, uh, uh, Alex Kendrick's films, 
a lot of the actors that he chooses to use, you can tell that they're not completely comfortable in front of a camera. They usually, it usually feels like a sort of church play production in terms of their performance quality. An old teacher of mine, when talking about certain actors, used a phrase that I've talked about on Battleship Pretension, which is, I can see the strings. Oh, which yes, is to, absolutely. And, and when you're looking at, you know, which is why, this is why I say, like, it's important for him to seem natural and relaxed in front of the camera, because if you don't, then you can see the actor pulling the strings inside themselves, which is, the director said I'm supposed to be angry now. So I will right. now be angry. Mm-hmm. Like you can see the mechanism and it doesn't seem natural. It doesn't seem organic. Exactly. Uh, whereas his performance, I think mostly does. Mostly. Yeah. I, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And in general, yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got, uh, I don't know if it's Trace or Tracy, Tracy Adkins. I'll say it's Tracy uh, Tracy Adkins playing the eventual manager mm-hmm. um, who I actually liked his performance. I did too. And here's my comment about this. I always liked him. He's interesting to look at. His mm-hmm. delivery is solid. I always liked him on screen. I wished they had written something a little better for him because I feel like he yep. could have handled some more complexity than they really gave him. doesn't mean that they don't give him a couple of quality scenes, but he's always interesting. Anytime he's on screen, he's interesting. There, Yeah, he has a good voice. He just has a really interesting presence. And I don't know enough about... Uh, he, he's a country music he's singer. He's a country music singer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. enough about country that I immediately recognized him as yeah. that. And so I found myself... I didn't think he was a newcomer or anything, but I thought like, who's this guy? Yeah, exactly. He stands part, out. Part of me thought like, is he a wrestler? Because he's, <laughs> he's huge. He's got that presence. Yeah, um, very tall. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's the kind of thing that if this script were written better mm-hmm. and you know it's the I, it's the same old thing in every christian film like where it starts to go wrong is the script yeah. now some movies it just keeps going wrong <laughs> but in other films i think this is one of them it is prime like the problem is primarily at the script level specifically mm-hmm. at the dialogue level that's the kind of character when you comes right down to it yes this is not a sports movie but it's close in that yeah. there's a coach character and that's him yeah yeah and you know we've seen from stuff like uh chariots of fire or uh cinderella man or rocky the coach or the trainer can be a really nice juicy role yeah and yes he has a couple of good scenes but when you think of like what what somebody could have done Mm-hmm. with that especially because he's based on a real guy and by because i went look i looked this up uh, and by all accounts he's a character he's like a really <laughs> fun gruff type of guy oh interesting and now just imagine him imagine the the few moments that like really resonate mm-hmm. and now just imagine the whole character is written like that at all times like yeah. it would be really exciting but yeah it's it's a good performance and a good screen presence that i think is largely not necessarily wasted or squandered, but certainly not fully realized yeah. as far as the script goes. No, I, I totally understand. Um, I think uh, it threw me out a little bit. I don't know that I would have wanted them to do anything differently, but it threw me out a little bit knowing who Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant are, mm-hmm. seeing someone on screen that, that is so, it looked so, Amy Grant looked like Amy Grant a couple of times and definitely sounded like Amy Grant. I think that they just used 
Andy sure. Grant's song on there. I, it would shock me if they didn't. Um, but I think that took me out of the film a little bit where I'm like, okay, I know that's not, that's not really who that is, but I don't know that I would have wanted them to do anything differently. I mean, Michael W. Smith's too old now to play his younger self and right. Grant's similar situation. And, and so, uh, so it was interesting because I did not remember, well, I didn't know much of anything about this story. Their appearance in the film and their role in Bart's story was yeah. a surprise to me. I didn't know that they had any yeah. anything to do with any of that. And so I kind of, I kind of liked that about it just because I know those people, mm -hmm. uh, not personally, of course, but like, I just, I know those, those personas. And so I didn't, uh, I, I just found it interesting that they had such a pivotal role in this particular story. You know, what's interesting about that is that that is an interesting part of the story and it did actually happen. However, <laughs> it didn't feel necessary to me. It actually mm. felt unnecessarily complicated. Oh, I hear you. Isn't that yeah. weird? Yeah, no, like, I get it. I know it. that yeah. it's the real thing. And so obviously, why would you ever cut that out? Except sure. people cut stuff out all the time uh, in, <laughs> in real life stories. Sure. And sure. while I recognize, of course, you're going to want to feature Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, yeah. those are two big names. But to me, it's like, eh, you should put them together into one character and have it be one or the other. Probably Amy Grant. Amy since Grant's she, the one. Yeah. Since mm -hmm. she played a, a bigger role yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, the, in, in this story. Um, and could have given, again, I feel like I'm cutting you off so much, fine. but, and could have given her, again, we're talking about dramatizing a real life event, but yeah. could have given her even more complex of an arc than she had because there was a real moment there. They say she's originally interested in this song because she needs a comeback song. Yeah. It's a throwaway line, yeah. but she just, they say she needs a comeback song. Yeah. And so it could have, from a character perspective, I'm not talking about what really happened or whatever, but from a character perspective, it's, it's significant that she revokes her opportunity at what is clearly yeah. going to be a hit song and instead allows the singer songwriter to, to take that moment. It's not that the film undercuts it. In fact, I feel like it overplays that moment, but they don't do so by utilizing conflict within Amy Grant's character. They over, yeah, they overplay it or I won't even say overplay. They play it up mm -hmm. as just a function of a thing that happened. But, and because we're seeing things from Bart's perspective, we're seeing is like, wow, what a great thing. Right. Right. But there is something to be said for. And, and again, there, these are characters we've seen before. We've seen the coach manager. And so we right, could have seen that. Right. And now we have a fading star mm, mm -hmm. who has an opportunity here yeah, and is actually giving it up. That's very rare to see in like show business movies. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. we're used to seeing the fading star become kind of petty. Sure. Um, and possessive of the things that could launch, you know, relaunch their career, whatever it is. And so, yeah, if we had developed that character a little bit more, and I understand that because this is a biopic, you can't develop everybody, but I feel like it would, th it would have been so much more satisfying if we got a sense that she's really sacrificing something here. Well, and they, they missed such a gaping, this is going to, this is going to sound like me being really harsh on the film, but mm -hmm. now as this is, as we're talking about this, I'm realizing what a missed opportunity this was because it, it's a bit of a surprise, and I forgot it until this second. It's a bit of a surprise that she is the frame of the story, like mm -hmm. the, like the opening moments of the of the movie are him sitting down at what I thought when I watched it was like a radio interview. That's what I thought too. I yeah. thought this is just some spot that he's doing about the song, telling his life, yeah. and you find out 
later in the film that no, he's actually telling Amy Grant yeah. the story behind the song because she's considering singing it. And yeah. I'm like, it's it's baked into that possibility right there. That yeah. that's that's your frame for the whole story is her yeah. making this conflicting decision, yeah. and then they could have done so much more with her hearing the story and. And maybe even having a side yeah. conversation with her manager or something like that about yeah. what was right to do. And I know it's not her story, but there were just some missed opportunities. If you, that's the thing is, if you don't develop her character, then that framing device is mostly pointless. Yes, I agree. You know, yeah. Like I was thinking, I was thinking about this uh, the other day about about uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Mm. That also has a framing device. Yeah, where he is talking to a police detective. Right. Played by the awesome Irfan Khan, who apparently is sick. And is, uh, oh, no. uh, according to him, he's like on his way out, uh, which For is, real? yeah, it's oh, a very I sad know thing. anything about this. Um, really? but, uh, but that's a framing device where we're developing the character of the te- detective. We are mm-hmm. understanding this, uh, relationship that is coming right. together. And so, yeah, we could have done that. And there, there are a couple times in the film where we cut to scenes that Bart is not in. Yeah. And so I think it'd be perfectly fine to cut to one or two with her in it. Yeah. And not that not that we would do a false crisis and maybe establish her as some type of villain or something like that. No. Nothing like no. that. But just have her understand, maybe have her have a, a, a scene, you know, with uh, Trace Atkins, Tracy Atkins. Sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And just develop these supporting characters. Because that's the thing is right now the only supporting character that really feels developed is his dad. Yes. Um, Not even so much his like ex-girlfriend Shannon, like she, and, and soon to be wife. Like she doesn't, she feels it's not the actress's fault. I think she does a fine job, but like, uh, she just kind of feels like a device. She really is. It's, it's sad that she's given almost the least to do in the film. Even, and I, I mean this even perhaps less, than his fellow bandmates who some of them don't even have a line. Yeah. And she feels like she's given even less in the film to do her child counterpart, the, uh, mm-hmm. cause, uh, they follow her character through several ages when she's a little child, they have some kind of nice moments. Yeah. But as she becomes the adult, it's not, yeah, they, it's, it's almost as if, and here's maybe a comment that I would make about the film entirely is almost everything about it felt terribly inevitable every sure. and and this is not just because it's a biopic which i i feel like that's a frequent problem biopics have to mm-hmm. go up against is people are at least going to be vaguely familiar with the story and so you have to introduce elements in it that people may already know and right. how do you make that dramatic and how do you make it tense um but it, there's so much about this film that just felt and maybe part of it is that it opens I again I thought the opening was him being interviewed on the radio about this hit song. Yeah. And you feel you get the sense there's no mystery at all in the film about is is this song is he going to be a success? Yeah. Is this song going to be a behemoth? No, because they tell you in the first couple of seconds of yeah. of the film. And that's interesting cuz so many things are coming to me right in the moment because when you think it's a radio spot, it makes so much feel inevitable. Mm-hmm. If I knew beforehand that it was actually Amy Grant 
thinking this song was going to be a hit, so considering buying it and considering yeah. recording it, then that flips the dramatic tension, and it causes everything else to be like his whole big break is hinging on this. Yeah. Maybe that would have added some more dramatic tension. I don't know. Woulda, coulda, shouldas, but... Well, and that's, you know, it, it's it's such an interesting filmmaking lesson that, hey, he's being he's a musician, she's a musician, they're in a studio, mm-hmm. they're talking. All of that makes sense. Yeah. But you have you and I both thought that was a radio interview. Yeah, absolutely. Initially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's because there were microphones near them. They yes. weren't speaking into microphones, but it certainly looked like they were. But they were nearby. And then yeah. there was like a, a sound booth behind it. Like yeah. it seemed like a radio interview. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I recognize that by setting it there, you're establishing that they're musicians, or at least sure. you're trying to. You're establishing that they're in show business one way or another. Right. And so I feel like, yeah, you need to be aware of how things could come across sure. to the audience. And, and, if so, like what could, the, what the, what might the audience think? Right. Because yeah, radio show. And I thought it was, this whole thing was going to be a flashback mm-hmm. and it was going to be him just recounting his, his astonishing success. <laughs> right. Um, right. So yeah, it's, uh, which I guess speaks to, that's a filmmaking choice and like a choice to where, of where to set something. But yeah, I do think that, well, the last the last positive thing I'll say is that I think Dennis Quaid is very good. There are a couple moments where I think he kind of uh, overplays it a little bit. But at the same time, I also think casting Dennis Quaid was interesting because mm. he has a natural charisma and a natural charm. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of get the impression that this is a guy who earlier in his life, and this is partially because we know who Dennis Quaid is, earlier in his life, he was probably like a lady killer. Yeah. He was probably very popular. He played football. Like, sure. And he was just a really likable person. Mm-hmm. And then, Something things, went then wrong. things took a turn. He started yeah. drinking, became a, a horrible person. And so by casting Dennis Quaid, you, you get to see who he could be. Sure. And who he used to be. And I think that's it's an effective casting choice. And I'll say this as far as scenes that are effective, because, and in this case, it's because I didn't think they were going to go this far. There's a very good scene where Bart is having breakfast with his father. He's doing what he can to try to like connect with his father. I yes. think his father's trying to connect with him. And when it doesn't happen, his father breaks a plate over his head. Yes. Yes. And like actually breaks it. And then there's blood and everything. And you're like, right. And I was like, I did not see that coming. Right. Right. Like, I thought that a lot of the physical abuse is going to be hinted at. We might've gotten like a, we, I, I thought his father was going to maybe throw the plate. No. Yeah. No. Right over right his over son's his head. head. Right. And in that moment, it's like, this is very important because this character needs to seem fairly irredeemable. This is a guy yes. that we, the audience should not want to forgive. Right. Absolutely. And that scene, the, the writing of it, the acting of it, and then culminating in that moment, I think is really effective. I agree. And, you know, hats off to the Irwin brothers for being willing to show a very uncomfortable, even before the plate, a very uncomfortable scene of like, sure. Cause I think it, it, I'll need you to refresh my memory. I think it is his dad who actually has made breakfast and is trying to reconcile. Yes. And, and it's prior to the, it's the first of two scenes like that. Yes. So uh, his dad makes breakfast, and it is following 
his being cast in Oklahoma. Yes. And so his dad sees the playbill for mm-hmm. like an advertisement for Oklahoma with his name up at the top. And he's like, I, you know, and he's like, I didn't even know that, that you could sing, you know, and everything. And his dad, in a way, and this is what makes Dennis Quaid's performance interesting, because yeah. in a way, he simultaneously seems like he's kind of trying to put him down, but yeah. also trying to connect. Yes. And, and, and you, as a viewer, I flipped back and forth almost second by second as to what I thought his intention behind the scene was, which is probably uh, synchronous with what his son as a character was right. feeling in that moment. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And yeah. very suspicious of this. And then when it all sort of tanks, that's yeah. when he smashes that plate over his head. And it's, it's that kind of thing, you know, uh, that my family didn't drink, uh, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I never really had to deal with like an alcoholic, but my dad, his stepfather was a big drinker. And mm-hmm. something that my dad occasionally said is you have to navigate what you think they're feeling Mm. and you know, somebody who's drunk and somebody who specifically is an alcoholic and it's just like, so you're just very cautious and always kind of on your toes, ready to go wherever you need to go. And that scene is so effective because we are in the same position as Bart, like you said, trying to figure out exactly where he's coming from. And when you realize that this was his dad's rather pathetic attempt to connect. Yeah. And then when it does, and he clearly had, uh, I say clear, I was about to say he clearly had a vague thing, but um, he had some idea of how he wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. And all he knows is that it's not going that way. And the only way he knows how to respond to that is with anger and violence and frustration aimed at this person who, why can't you just give me what I want? Right. Which right. is you, incidentally. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really, it's, it's a scene that, you know, when you see these little moments here, you know, the one of the the various, like, music promoters and stuff giving him oh, yeah. actual notes, I think the scene where he goes to his ex-girlfriend uh, and tries to, like, yes. declare, like, hey, come yeah. with us. Like, I think, you know what? All three of these scenes have to do with somebody who has a very clear idea of how things should be. Mm. And then they are met with harsh reality. Yeah. And, yeah. and I feel like, those scenes belong in a better movie. Like the rest of the film from an exposition standpoint, as far as people just declaring stuff, declaring how they feel, I feel like it just, it doesn't work very well. But, uh, and so in the end I, I thought the film was just kind of fine. And I should also say, I don't like that song. Um, I've never found it very effective. That's my personal thing. I don't blame anybody who does like that song. I don't know enough about music to say you shouldn't, but like, as is the case with most Christian music, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really overproduced and that there's nothing really raw about it. I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's honest. I know it's honest, Yeah, absolutely. but it's tough because they make a big deal of like, you wrote this song in 10 minutes. Now, if you're me, you're like, yeah, of course I I believe it. You know what? My, maybe give it 15. <laughs> you recorded the first draft. Right, and, exactly. And, and, and struck lightning in a bottle. So, yeah, I was going to make this comment about the film in general. I feel this way, though, about... I don't know why this movie came, came to my mind. This is probably the only context in which this film would come to my mind. But you remember Finding Forrester? Yes. Yeah. So so films where a a either a prodigy or a piece 
mm-hmm. is touted throughout the film as like this is this is the thing. This is the Mona Lisa yeah. of Christian songs. This is the this this is the work. When you when you build up a piece that big, the piece better be able to to handle yeah. the weight of that. And I felt like maybe it's my personal feelings about the song. Maybe the film didn't quite substantiate this for me, but I feel like the song could not bear the weight of narrative import that the film was giving right. it. Now, its success certainly can. Sure. I mean, it's triple platinum album, like most popular Christian song in history or whatever. Like, its success can definitely carry that weight. But the song itself, by the time he sings it in that big moment, partially my familiarity with it, but, I mean, to be honest, I, I really zoned out. And yeah. what's supposed to be the big yeah. sort of culminating moment of all of this and um and and so that was that was somewhat unfortunate because i feel like that dilutes yeah the real it, it, you know what it makes me think of and this is really not a fair comparison but it makes me think and wonder what it would have been like for them to have either teased out bits and pieces of the song throughout the film yeah or maybe make a somewhat bold choice and never play it for us yeah because I'm thinking of, of, of all weird non sequiturs, I'm thinking about how in the Avengers films, they never say Avengers Assemble. Get right, right up to it and sometimes say Avengers and then cut to credits yeah. or something. But it's like, you know it, you know it's there, but they never quite just yeah. like give it to you. And I'm wondering if that would have been something that would have somewhat elevated the film as if to say, hey, you've probably heard this song. You probably mm-hmm. know it. If you haven't heard it, YouTube has yeah. 30,000 covers of it and all this other sort of stuff. It's it's readily available. Yeah. Um, so it might have made a statement to the effect of, it's not really about the song. Right. It's about what substanced the song. And I don't know. I'm I'm thinking that might be might have been a better choice. Yeah, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. Like uh, my go-to, you said Finding Forrester. My go-to is Mr. Holland's Opus, mm-hmm. where you know he's he wants to be a composer and he's just teaching on the side. You know, but it is, turns out that his on the side gig was his actual life. Yeah. But he's been working on this composition, and then finally they decide like let's play it, and then they play it, and it's like oh boy, it's a good thing he got that teaching gig. <laughs> You know, don't quit your day job, Holland. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. As opposed to, uh, you know, in talking about like this song better bear out, mm-hmm. that thing you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. song. Yeah. I, I was looking it up the other day because um, I love the movie so much. That's uh, a great movie. We hear the song in its entirety twice, mm-hmm. we hear bits of it nine other times. Oh, interesting. So like in talking about like building up to things Mm -hmm. like it's a, and it's a song that we hear evolve and get better because Mm. these guys are just playing it over and over and over again. Sure. And I realize that the structure of, I can only imagine is not necessarily, it doesn't lend itself to that. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's tough because this is a true story. And so you do need to, and it's a true story of a very popular song. You know, sure. it's not my place to say that the song is not good. Right. It's just that it is not effective for me mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. And so when you've got characters saying like, 
saying like, I just, I can't stop listening to it. And I was like, really? Once was good for me. <laughs> right. um, you know, and, and I feel bad about that. And it's how I feel about most, it's how I feel about most modern Christian songs. Oh, I agree. Um, I agree. As opposed to this, I mean, I don't know if you know the story about uh, Horatio Spafford who wrote It Is Well. Oh, but no, like, I, yeah, that I've heard snippets a, of that story. Yes. That's yes. a story that, by the way, I don't think a Christian studio would ever want to tell. Because yes, not it's a wonderful. I love that song. I absolutely sure. adore it. Oh. Um, and yes. it comes af- after a bad time in his uh, a very bad time in his sure. life. Sure. And then after he wrote the song, he had like a total nervous breakdown. Yeah. And I think he recovered from it. But I mean, it was bad stuff. And we want to believe that. Hey, he lost his family. Right. He lo- after like he lost his whole family, like after losing a kid or something like that, really terrible stuff. And then he writes this song and, and it says like, you know what? It's well with my soul. Yeah. But then you, you keep living and there are going to be times when it's not well with your soul and you're yes. going to have a rough time. Yeah. But we don't like to talk about that. Like no. everything about this song works out uh, and ab- about this story works out very well. I can totally see why it was greenlit, but I want to see the, I want to, I want the <laughs> film. It is well. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And th- something that's just coming to me in this moment, you, you compare this to what is now essentially an old and classic hymn, yeah. like it is well. Um, they almost do themselves a disservice by, in this film about I Can Only Imagine, which this is the be-all, end-all, and then mm-hmm. having not one but two performances of Amazing Grace in it, yeah. which is, at this point, truly timeless. Yes. I mean, I don't think... I, I think objectively anybody can say, like, yes, Amazing Grace is now a timeless mm-hmm. song. It's a timeless composition. And so having that song in there while you're trying to to build up the, the weight and power and impact of a song like I Can Only Imagine, yeah. um, again, it's, it's Do things... Do you think they're trying to draw parallels? Possibly. And say that I can only imagine as the amazing grace of our time. Oh man, I would not be surprised because I tell yeah. you, this film feels like it is. Whether the directors do and whether yeah. Bart does himself, which he he certainly, from what I know of him, what little I know of him, he certainly would not make a claim like that. But yeah. uh, this film certainly feels like this is the amazing grace of our time. Yeah, and um, and that's something that is just is just somewhat unfortunate. The other. The other glance, you know, shot across the bow that I'll give is I thought a couple of times in it, boy, Mama just gave him everything. Like how oh, yeah, yeah. she's very clear, like, mercy me, mercy me. And it's like, yeah. oh, well, she, there's your band name. And then at the funeral, she's like, can you just imagine what he's seeing? And like, yeah. I have expected if this was Bob Dylan's grandma, she'd just be like, oh, what are you doing blowing in the wind out there? You know? <laughs> yeah. like, she's just giving all the lyrics to everything. And, and She's like, here we are stuck outside Mobile with the <laughs> Memphis Blues again. It's like, that's really good, grandma. I'm writing that down. Like, <laughs> she's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's complete gibberish in this context, but still. <laughs> What's happening in that storm cloud over there? Oh, hard rain's going to fall. <laughs> it's just on and on and on. But I remember thinking like Mama's only role in this movie oh, yeah. is is to give him, you know, like very specific call outs. Which is a shame. Like, you know, you've got if Cloris you've got Cloris Leachman, Leachman yes. you oh use my, her better. Oh, my gosh. And uh, and I feel like that's that can be a rather common element, even of some of the better uh, Christian films of like if you get a really big name, mm-hmm. you're going to put them in the most one note, like plastic sort of yeah. functionary role that you can. And that's a real shame. And, yeah. and obviously this is not true of Dennis Quaid. Right. We've already commented on his performance, but 
Yeah, someone like Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman is a certified name. Like yeah. she's she's now a borderline legendary. Yeah, and and yeah, they just really underutilize her. It's like, yeah, she can do build a whole find a character, <laughs> find a lead character she can play, and build a movie around it. Yeah, yeah. If Please. you have Cloris Leachman, then you say, oh, you know what? We're not doing this movie anymore. <laughs> We're now doing a movie about. Whoever it might be. Frau Blucher. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, That's a Christian film that we're not ready for. Exactly. Um, oh. But yeah, so it's... Uh, and so I, I do wonder if... If I'm being honest and if I'm being, you know, uh, uh, open, I would say it's hard to believe that this movie would ever have 100% worked for me. Because I, I don't yeah. really respond to the song, no, I get but that. I do think that if you if you make a good enough movie, like it might actually give me to it. It might have gotten me to look at the song again and yeah. think like, yeah. okay, hang on, let me let me listen to this again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so but the issue, as always, is is the script, which we've talked about. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it just it's it's not a terrible script. There are, there are worse ones out there, but. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I've that I say about any movie, Christian or otherwise, is that few things bother me more than when they have all of the resources. They've got it all there in mm-hmm. front of them and they still fumble it. You know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. many movies. I mean, you know, we live in Los Angeles. We know writers, we know directors, mm-hmm. we know actors, people who would who would kill to be in a really great project and would kill to have the resources sure. of a really great project. And we know that yeah, I mean, you yourself, you're a you're a writer. I've yeah, read your yeah. stuff. And like mm-hmm. if you had the resources to make some of the stuff that you've written, it would be marvelous. Yeah. 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 And so to have the resources that they had for this film and this is the script they came up with, which again is not the worst one I've I've heard, but just it's it's going to keep it from ever really breaking through, yeah, and and becoming as effective as I know it can be. Sure, um, but yeah, so uh, I will say that our companion film was a, a change. It was going to be Tender Mercies, but I chose which is that to film. I love. I I adore Tender Mercies. Yeah, um, but I felt the more I thought about James Mangold's walk the line from Mm. 2005, um, the more I thought like, Oh, this works really well as a companion film. Um, it's the story of Johnny cash and, uh, it's, I guess it's kind of a romance. There's a lot going on in the film, but, uh, the fact that it's considered like a a film with two leads, Mm -hmm. uh, with him and, uh, June Carter cash played by Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon respectively, um, it, it, that speaks to how much people in the lore of Johnny Cash, the role of June is not just the supportive wife or mm, anything like that. Right. Like she is right there with him. And even in yeah. the, in the, the end, uh, crawl there when they talk about how she died and then four months later, later he fought like it. Yes. They're, they're clearly wanting to frame this as these two were going to be together one way or another. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, so the film is not necessarily about everything that I can only imagine is about, but it does have a, a father who is, I'm not sure if he's physically abusive, but he's certainly emotionally abusive. Oh, no, no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, um, Johnny Cash's, uh, brother dies in a freak accident with a buzzsaw. Mm. Um, 
and his father, and and then Johnny becomes something of a screw up in a number of ways, and his sure. father actually is of the opinion that you know the wrong kid died, is which is a a, a phrase that is then used over and over again in the film Walk Hard, uh, <laughs> if you've seen that. But uh, oh gosh, where his, where literally like. The the dad is played by Raymond Barry and ev- and in every scene he goes the wrong kid died he just keeps saying it and just and his son just feels worse and worse every day. Um, oh my gosh! But yeah, so there's that and so the Johnny Cash character like he lost his brother and in the process he kind of lost the rest of his family and just mm-hmm. felt very much on the outs. Yeah. Uh, and then he made a series of bad choices uh, on his own. Yeah. And so he's a guy who just. Uh, you know, we know Johnny Cash, and we know that he has a number of uh, legendary songs to his credit. Oh man, and an amazing career, and that he him that he uh, identified himself as a as a Christian very uh, fervently. Oh yeah, no doubt. And uh, and that I wish that it I wish that that played a bigger role in the film. They play yeah. it big enough early on, and then they kind of move away from it. It's true because, like in his in his over. In his overarching life, it's always present, but the slight justification is it was much more on the surface and on the nose, uh, much more fervent, if, if to use your word, um, in the last you know probably thirty to forty years of his life yeah. than it was in his early career, which mostly this covers. Yeah. Um, but but it was always present. Like his and the film does sort of tease that. He started doing kind of got together to do gospel songs. Yeah. Um, so it was it was always there, and and the Carter family is like a gospel group. Yeah. So for for June's side of things, that was always, you know, she was always a very outspoken. Like they were a gospel family. Uh, she was, uh, you know, outspoken Christian in a lot of ways. And so, um, and for Johnny, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Walk the Line came out, it was only either like the year after or a couple years after his it, death. Yeah, it was very fast. So it hit um, like at, at, at an ideal time, if there is an ideal time for this thing. So, But it was also on the heels of his renaissance with producer Rick Rubin, yeah. where he was bringing him with the American recordings and was kind of bringing him back into the limelight after, believe it or not, almost like a has-been status. Yeah, and, um, and then of course, and the thing that, a number of of those songs like really broke through, but his rendition of "Hurt" oh, is the thing that yes. like really, and the video for "Hurt," which is so, <sighs> which is such a, ref, uh, a look back on his life, uh, yes. and June plays a, a small role in that as well. Yeah. Um, I think that got people to think like, oh, he's back, but also think back on everything that he has been uh, in in absolutely. music history. So that song played a really big role. Oh, absolutely. And the, the video for Hurt, uh, I believe the it's Mark Romanek uh, who directed yeah. that video. And the, the, the culmination not only of, you know, because he's there in the Johnny Cash music. You, yeah. th- so the reason this is the companion film, as you said, is how we, well, a number of ways, but kind of kind of one of the themes that you wanted to explore here is how we deal with our pain, how yeah. we deal with our grief. And I, I didn't expect it to come up, but yeah, Johnny Cash's cover of Trent Reznor's Hurt 
and the accompanying video yeah. where he's looking back on he's in the Johnny Cash Museum. Yeah. And and it's all relics. Most of the relics are now sort of run down. Yeah, the museum and itself is kind of in disrepair. Exactly. It's dusty. He's sitting at the at the piano and and then it's juxtaposing this from uh, from earlier points of his career, but very specifically and I forget who directed the film, but but Johnny Cash starred in and funded a film in the, I want to say it was late 70s, late 70s or early 80s, called The Gospel Road. Hmm. And it was a, it was Johnny Cash talking through a two-hour version of the life of Christ. Hmm. But it's, if you remember the old, man, I'm a real deep cut here, but if you remember back... I want to say make like maybe mid nineties when Charlton Heston was reading the Bible. Oh yes, and there were tons of advertisements for Charlton Heston reads the Bible. Yeah. Um, if you can think of this film, The Gospel Road, as as that, it's mm-hmm. Johnny Cash for two hours telling you the story of Jesus, breaking in with song every once in a while. But he kind of goes from beginning to end. Yeah. The clips that they use in the Hurt video because there are images of Christ on yeah. the cross and all this stuff. It's from. The Gospel Road. It's mm. clips and images from The Gospel Road. So there's a lot wrapped up in that three-and-a-half-minute music video, yeah. um, not only about Johnny Cash looking back on his legacy, looking back specifically on sort of the the, the painful parts of yeah. how he got to where he is, but in the same token, the possibility for redemption that, yeah. that lies there. Obviously, if you're a believer, it's always fascinating to me. I don't know what Mark Romanek's faith perspective is. I really don't know. Johnny Cash, as we've said, is you know very outspoken Christian, especially at that point in his life. So I have to believe that he was either either Romanek was tapping into knowing that element of him yeah. and u- utilizing that in an artful way, or Johnny Cash was pushing that forward. Yeah, I think he. Uh, yes, I also don't know the the situation, but I do think that he realized that if I'm going to make like this, this video is going to be 100% about Johnny cash. Yes. It's not him singing about some other thing. It is him completely. And this is part of who he is and I'm not going to shy away from it. Right. Um, and yeah, and it's, uh, and I, I love the nine inch nails version, but when you hear this older guy who has achieved a level of fame and respect singing this song, Oh, it takes on such a different quality to Mm -hmm. it. Um, and I, it becomes this, it becomes this idea of who cares? Like, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. look, especially, and the video solidifies it, which is like, I'm in the midst of this museum built to me. Yes. But I'm still so, alone and who cares, you know? Oh yeah. And I always thought that actually, if ever I had the time, I would, I was going to, uh, I was going to edit together a video to that song Mm -hmm. and the video is going to be structured much the same way, but it was all going to be clips from Citizen Kane. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But that would work. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it absolutely would. And, yeah, the moments like, and again, we're talking about like, you know, how you, how you sort of cope with the pain that you have in your life, but the moments like that image that stands out to me right now, I haven't seen the hurt video in, in quite some time, but the image that stands out to me right now is, is of him pouring out that glass of wine mm-hmm. 
while he's saying the line, and you can have it all, my yeah. empire of dirt. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, this whole idea of what really, what really does matter when you, when you look back on things. Yeah. And I feel like, getting for a brief second back to I Can Only Imagine, I feel like that's, that's one thing that the film definitely addresses, but I almost wonder if they could have pushed it further or maybe tied it into the song a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please, listeners, don't judge me, but, but honestly, like I hear that he wrote I Can Only Imagine after the death of his father, and I, I just wonder what some of the connection was. I mean, obviously, yeah. he's thinking about heaven. Yeah. That's obvious, but... There's not. There wasn't a lot in the film. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and criticize the film for this. Not sure. Mar, not Bart as a person. Not the song. There wasn't a lot in the film to substantiate why that relationship fueled this song. It is. It's interesting. I mean, in one on one hand, I do like that it allows us to connect those dots. Sure. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I feel like I just needed a little bit, even if it's the vaguest explanation possible. In fact, I think I'd prefer that as opposed mm. to here's what I meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't right, want right, that. Right. But yeah, I definitely, uh, that thought did occur to me. Yes. That I didn't understand how a got to be right. Um, but, uh, and that's, and that's kind of okay for me usually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, to go back to it as well. All right. I can make the connection there. Yeah, you know? yeah some, some direct line <laughs> yeah. correlations, even in Amazing Grace, some yeah. direct line correlations. Yeah. And then juxtaposing that to to something like Hurt mm-hmm. and what we're talking about with Hurt and bringing it back to, to Mangold's Walk the Line, um, a moment like when June in Walk the Line is frustrated mm-hmm. by what's happening with Johnny and then... It's a bit silly in the moment, but she says, you know, that it burns, it burns, yeah. it burns. And we, knowing Ring of Fire, right. know that's eventually going to gonna yeah. turn into that. You see, there are moments in Walk the Line which feel like they substantiate these songs, yeah. even if they're complete fabrications. It yeah. feels like it substantiates the, the creation of these songs more so than I got the sense from, I can only imagine, yeah. that his relationship with his father really fueling... Right this song, this song being the culmination of that. And, uh, and walk the line. I feel like you, when he, well, you kind of get the sense and I can only imagine too. What I was going to say is that in walk the line, when Johnny has his, his sort of breakdown moments where Mm -hmm. he's really, he's, he's in the throes of these substances that he's addicted to, and he's just losing it on stage. You feel as the audience or I do, you feel what brought him to that moment. Right. And you grieve for him at the same moment that you're kind of mad at him for everything that is happening. Um, with I Can Only Imagine, it didn't always, like sometimes I just found myself frustrated yeah. by what was going on in the moment and wishing that the characters on screen would just like, oh, get over it already. Not to be too <laughs> dismissive, but you know there were a couple of times where I was like, oh my gosh, not related to the abuse, obviously, but things like... Uh, I got very frustrated by the fact that Bart would not listen to the advice of his manager. Right. Just incessantly. Yeah. Um, and 
again, we're talking about a coach here, but but his manager sits down and has essentially like a pep talk with him where part of what I was hoping for is that mo- in that moment is more of a come to Jesus, get over yourself kind of talk. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I yeah. didn't write this film. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't have too much stock and say in what they should have done. Well, and and in, in that scene, well, uh, he has a couple of scenes like that, but uh, we start to get what I guess is partially the the theme of I can only imagine not really um but it's enough that they mention it and oddly enough there is a scene that is similar in Walk the Line uh so we have this moment where uh the character Brickle or Brickell I don't know how you say it uh the Trace Atkins character right uh he is a, uh, a manager and he comes to see Bart's band and, you know, he kind of appreciates their spirit and all that sort of thing, but, uh, he doesn't really, doesn't really think that they're doing it, that they're, yeah. that it's really working emotionally. And so he, he says, you know, he's talking to Bart about like his pain and he says, let that pain become your inspiration. And then elsewhere he says, you got talent, you got potential, you can sing, but I don't think you found your song, found your soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those those are interesting moments and I, and I like, you know, in a way I, I, I do hope that, uh, a Christian audience sees this and, and those that would be artists of some kind would look at this scene and actually, uh, be inspired by it. This idea of like not being afraid to incorporate some of the darker elements of your life or your own, or your own personality into your music. You know, it's a big part of what Johnny Cash did. Absolutely. You know, like he was the man in black and, and it actually bothered some, some Christians that sure. he did that. Yeah. Uh, but his music became a lot more real. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we see in this scene, uh, with Sam Phillips, when Johnny Cash and his band, they go and they perform a gospel song and Sam Phillips is just as bored as can be. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and so, and I, and here's what we're talking about. So I just read now, admittedly, I, these are just, these are just lines from the, from the scene between scenes between Brickell and Bart, but listen to this from, uh, walk the line. Sam Phillips says, if you was hit by a truck and you was lying out there in that gutter dying, you had time to sing one song, huh? One song, uh, that people would remember before your dirt, one song that would let God know, uh, how you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. You tell me that's the song you'd sing? The same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within, about how it's re- and how it's real and how you're going to shout it? Or would you sing something different, something real, something you felt? Because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. It ain't got nothing to do with believing in God, Mr. Cash. It has to do with believing in yourself. Now, that last part about believing in yourself, if I never hear that line again in anything, <laughs> in any movie or TV show, I'll be happy. But, yeah. like, this is an in, like, that, now imagine, like, the Trace Atkins character saying something sure. like that. Yeah. You know, where he just says, like, he's, he's ultimately saying, hey, uh, these gospel songs aren't helpful. Yeah, right. What right. you have inside you, like if you, it, it kind of speaks to something that I've said before on the show. Uh, back when I would, was uh, back when I would write stuff, and my mom would say, like, you know, well, uh, this stuff that you're writing, like, is it is it good? Is it you know, what's mm. it? 
And I said, well, mom, okay, I am a, I'm a Christian and I try to live a very real faith and I try to be in tune with what I think God wants. And I, and I try to let that, let the sense of morality, but also the larger sense of meaning that mm-hmm. comes out of that. I like, I want that to be ingrained in everything that I do. So knowing that, do you really think I'm going to write showgirls? Right. Right. You know, like, or do you think I, I might write something that's a little bit dark and maybe a violent or something sure, like that? Sure. But do you really think I'm going to, even if I'm, even if I wanted to, do you right. really think I could do something as haphazard as what you're talking about? Right. And right. so, you know, so that's this scene in walk the line and this scene in, uh, I can only imagine this idea of recognizing that if you're, an artist or even not like not being afraid to really deal honestly with your pain. Right. Um, you know, I, I'll tell this. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell this story. I wasn't planning on it, but, um, so listeners know that for the last year and a half, two years, I've not been in a great place, uh, emotionally, Uh, and then thankfully in the last few months, it started to really turn around and my marriage was not in a good place and a good portion of it was me and my refusal to actually tell Jen about how I was feeling and how I was dealing with my depression. And I had somehow convinced myself that I was doing her a favor by not saying this stuff Mm. that I was, that she had too much to worry about already. Um, and that she didn't need the additional burden of knowing about how I'm feeling. Well, as it turns out, uh, what I was essentially doing is just cutting off all communication. And she said like, it got to the point where it almost felt like we were roommates uh, mm-hmm. who really weren't involved with each other's lives. And so, uh, a few, at this point, I guess it was a, a few months ago, but, uh, we had a very in-depth conversation, uh, in which I started saying how I was actually feeling. And, you know, it was, it was difficult and not feeling towards her, but in general. And I, I definitely still felt like I was burdening her, but she, she was grateful because she now knew what I'm actually going through, what I'm mm-hmm. dealing with. And so um, along those lines, uh, there's a, a Tim Keller sermon series, uh, and I don't remember the name of it, and I don't know if it's still available, but he was talking about, like, what do you do with your tears? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you deny them? Do you ignore them? Like, what do you do with them? And especially when you're a Christian and things in your life have not gone well, or maybe the external is fine, but the internal is pretty banged up. You know, what do you do with that? Do you, as like going back to this, uh, this line from walk the line where he says, you know, Oh, singing that same song we hear on the radio about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Mm. You know, and I definitely know that I myself was, uh, you know, when you're Christian long enough, you kind of know what people are looking for. Mm. And so, you know how to give the impression of being honest and give the impression that you're sharing your pain without actually doing it. Right. And so 
one of the things that uh, Keller says in his sermon series is he talks about the best thing to do is to pl- what he calls planting your tears, which is to say using them to grow something, hmm. but not denying them, being honest about what you're dealing with, being honest with God, with your friends, with yourself about right. where you are. And if life has dealt you a crappy hand, being honest and being like, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> right. This right. is uh, thumbs down. Yeah, of course. Um, and so, uh, so that, you know, when I look at these movies and this idea of, of both characters being told like, Hey, I know that there's a way that you think you need to act mm, mm-hmm. here in regards to the stuff that maybe hasn't been so great. Sure. But you'll actually, what's, what's interesting is by acknowledging it, you actually start down a path of, of, of growing something positive out of it. Um, and so, uh, there's, I I only have one Bible passage here, Psalm 126, one through six. Um, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for for them. Uh, the Lord has gr- has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our, restore our for- pardon me, restore our fortunes, Lord, uh, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So I have no doubt that this is kind of what Tim Keller was talking about when he was talking about planting your tears. And yeah. so when we talk about sowing, we don't actually talk about fabrics. We talk about mm-hmm. planting seeds right. so that you can grow something out of them. And so, you know, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, uh, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And so, like, I, you know, as we're talking about here... Um, and just to kind of repeat myself, I guess, uh, it's weird to be talking about these films about like musicians and they've got father issues and that sort of thing. And this is kind of what I combed out of it. Um, and oddly enough, there's a line that, that struck me in walk the line in which June is talking to Johnny and she says, you, you wear black cause you can't find anything else to wear. You found your sound cause you can't play no better. You just tried to kiss me because it just happened. You should try to take credit for something every once in a while, John. I do like her character. I, um, I love her in this movie. Yeah. I, I've always just, as a side comment, I always just like Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. I love her as June yeah. Carter Cash. She's phenomenal. She did win Best Actress that year. Yeah, she did. Um, but uh, this idea of, you know, when you, when you refuse to acknowledge what you're feeling or acknowledge how you feel shortchanged by life or whatever it is. Uh, I feel like it's kind of a way of checking out and kind of Mm -hmm. a way of just saying like, ah, what does it matter? This was a big part for me. Like, what does it matter if I tell Jen how I'm feeling? What does it matter how I tell if I tell anybody what I'm feeling? Um, it's not going to keep anything from happening. And, it suggests that there's a certain 
attitude there that suggests like, well, we have, you know, nothing's going to change with us. Like mm. life is just going to roll over us like a steamroller and you know, it has nothing to do with, you know, we don't have anything to do with anything. God's just going to do what he's going to do. And right. And it's like, he will do what he's going to do. Yes. But you still have a voice here mm-hmm. and in voicing your frustrations and your sadness you know, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, clearly, yeah. Yeah. C- clearly expressing grief and sadness and anger is an important thing. And as you do, you know, you start to take responsibility for some things that maybe you have done that brought you where you are, or even just taking responsibility for your own response to it, like as opposed to being this passive uh, observer in your own life yeah. who is just saying what he's supposed to say, doing what he's supposed to do, not letting on how he's actually feeling and not engaging with anybody, probably most, especially God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I I feel I've been talking for a while here. Uh, Did any of, as you watch these movies, does this, and you look at these scenes that I, that I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, uh, does this resonate with you in, in that regard? Oh, significantly. I feel like what, what is birthed most often in these kind of things, you automatically know, okay, uh, abusive father, tragedy strikes the life. You know, like probably everyone has some sort of pocket of pain that they have to deal with. And the reason we watch these kind of stories is because we, we want to see other people overcome them right or you know do great things in spite of them whatever whatever that is but i feel like i'm i'm really touched by this observation of like planting your tears um there's a there's a there's an author named michael card he was actually a a christian music artist for a, a long time uh, and one of a very specific ilk, not in the vein of like the I can only imagines, mm-hmm. um, but uh, almost like an old uh, psalmist, uh, as it were, with with a lot of his music. And uh, he wrote two books, uh, one called The Sacred Sorrow and one called The Hidden Face of God, both based on... I think on, I know Sacred Sorrow. Oh, it's a wonderful it, book. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. And both based on the idea of this lost language of lamenting mm-hmm. you know that, that we've that we've forgotten how to do that so when i see when i see a film like i'll i'll admit that i can only imagine it's almost like that th- they're they're saturating you with these idea yeah. of like this this pain fueled this story with yeah. walk the line because i feel like walk the line is a more uh, com it's not a complex film but it's right. more complex than sure. i can only imagine um so there's a lot of other things going on in the same avenue but the moment like if you were to track scene by scene like just look at the grief that he's experiencing that scene with with his father Mm -hmm. when he i it's staggering when after his father sort of you know side shade belittles him like what do you you know what do you think of the house dad and he's like well it's not as big as jack benny's yeah but then cash's response is i'm so glad you guys could all be here but we're not all here are we and it's like it, the first time I saw the film, it struck me as a very interesting sort of pivot 
because he's not just lashing out at his dad yeah. for not being there with him. He's very specifically saying there was an element to this whole, you know, the walk hard joke of like the wrong kid died. Yeah. Like there's this very specific element of like you, when you look at the whole of the story of walk the line or the, that film in the context of that scene as kind of a crux point, yeah. you see that like, yeah, everything has been fueled based on, Perhaps, again, we're talking about this film, not Johnny Cash as a person, mm -hmm. but in the film Walk the Line, that version of Johnny Cash, maybe his entire existence has been trying to justify his own existence oh, because yeah. he lost this, this brother and feels like he has to sort of prove that he deserves to still keep his heart beating or yeah. something like that and loathes himself for feeling like he doesn't quite live up to it, which is why, uh, at least in the film, he connects so strongly to like the, the murderers, the prisoners, yeah. you know, and there's a reason why in that film that is the opening scene yeah. of the film. And then it culminates in, uh, you know, his relationship with June and everything. But this, it's a bit on the nose, so forgive me, Tyler, mm -hmm. forgive me, listeners, but this idea of how grief can shackle you and yeah. it can keep you trapped uh, in this sort of confined place where you don't feel mobile. You don't feel like you're ever going to see past it, um, that regardless of how long you live your life, you're always going to be in this little squared sort of sort of box. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of relevance to understanding how we cope with our own pain and whether or not we are as brickle Brickell, however you say his name encourages him to, I loved that moment where he said, uh, and I can only imagine where he said to Bart, when I see something real, it's almost like you're afraid of it. Yeah. And that notion of we are, I think, scared to be honest about what hurts us. Yeah. And we are, I think, scared to be transparent about yeah. our wounds. We're afraid people will minimize them. Yeah. We're afraid that they, they really won't mean anything. And ultimately, this thing that's been very devastating for us may be ultimately inconsequential. And I think that's something that frightens us too, because if it's devastating to us, we want it to be devastating to like objectively, Yeah, but it may not be. And I think some of us can't quite cope with that, that it devastated our world, but it might not be as objectively devastating to others. And to bring in uh, Christian film itself, actually uh, a thing that I've find myself, I find myself saying for many years at this point is that one of the things that bothers me about it is that it it seems to be trying to sell. Yeah. Now, I understand that, of course, as Christians, we're supposed to preach the good news. Yeah. But I think we're supposed to preach it honestly. And a big part for me about Christian film that has bothered me is that I, it, it often doesn't seem very honest. It says, like, mm. oh, if you look at the end of war room or, or really any of these, you know, Oh, things work out fine for the Christians. Yeah. Uh, and there, and there aren't even any worldly consequences mm -hmm. to things that they might've done. And so, uh, I'd be much more interested in, in these movies if they were willing to acknowledge the grief and the things that just don't make any sense and the right. things that aren't fair, mm -hmm. you know, and recognize that, being a Christian does not guarantee that you will be without pain. Right. 
right. at all. And so, in a way, by it, it's the same instinct that we're talking about, which is someone, you know, you see something real and you and you run away from it. I feel like I might be stretching here, but as Christians, you know, we recognize that we're dealing in invisible things and that can be difficult. And Mm. when the rest of the world, especially now is saying that that's dumb and that, you know, you should, you should only think in terms of what you can see and touch. Um, you know, we're being told constantly that we need to doubt, uh, what we believe. And, then when we see the pain in our own lives, that can also, even if objectively we we realize that that doesn't prove anything, Mm, um, mm -hmm. it can cause us to doubt. And so, Oh, why, uh, why acknowledge that even for ourselves? Why, why dwell on that? Mm -hmm. Because I think we, along with trying to sell to other people, I think we do want to sell our faith to ourselves or rather like, yeah, you know, we want, we've already bought it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we need to raise consumer confidence in what, in what we've purchased. <laughs> right. And so, right. and I think it goes back to this idea that, that Christianity and God, either as a concept or as an actual being, can deal with our doubt, yeah. can deal with our anger, can deal with our sadness, um, but only if we actually express it and actually deal with it. Yes. If we aren't honest with ourselves about the, the crappy parts of this life, mm-hmm. then it will be not, uh, it will be un- not unlike me with Jen, where I think I'm, I'm, I'm taking it all on myself and I feel like I'm, I'm, do- that's the right thing to do. But all I'm really doing is cutting myself off from relationship, right? A relationship that incidentally, if I simply admit this stuff to someone who's willing to take on the burden, mm-hmm. and I think I see, I think we see where we're headed here, by the sure. way, like yes. Yes. someone who's willing to take on that burden, mm-hmm. it actually, you know, I think I'm hurt. I, I was going to hurt her, but in actuality it helped to heal me and her. Yes. You know? And so this idea that, that God is, is more than willing to take that on, mm-hmm. uh, as long as we're honest about it and open about it, yeah. I think that is the nature of Jesus is mm-hmm. taking on the burden of, in our, you know, in this case, the stuff we have done, not even the yeah. stuff, stuff that was done to us, but the stuff we have done and we feel like, no, no, this is too big. You can't, you can't deal with this. Like, no, he can, and yeah. he will. And if you continue to keep it on yourself, then you're just going to make yourself miserable unnecessarily. And, and you're not really, and you're not planting anything and nothing's going to grow out of it. You know, yes, this is a big part of the movie Manchester by the sea, Mm, um, which at some point we'll talk about. Mm. But, uh, anyway, sorry, you, you look like you were going to say something. uh, So a thought just struck me as you were talking about this. One thing that I will, that I will praise, about the song I can only imagine and mm. that I will praise about, you know, Bart's, Bart's life, mm-hmm. not about the film. Cause I don't feel the film does justice to what I'm about to identify. Okay. We're, we're talking about this notion of, you know, planting your tears. Um, there is, if you just look at the, at the core sort of lyrics, 
there seems to be a sincere humility about it. Yes, it's it's a bit of a uh, a, a catchy phrase, but sure. that whole notion of like I can only imagine, like I, it, it's it is uh, speaking hopefully of these sorts mm-hmm. of things. But there is an authentic sort of humility yeah. to it, um, and there is a sensibility. Much as I still feel the same way as I always have about the song, yeah. there there does seem to be an authenticity to what he was producing and yeah. that I could buy being yes. fueled from, okay, this is, you know, I, I don't know what all of this adds up to my relationship with my father, all of these sorts of th- these avenues that have gone on in my life. I don't know what they, they all add up to, but to be honest with you, all of that is beyond me anyway. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that is something that, that sparked, you know, yeah. in, in Stephen King says, in his defense of his own writing and in his defense of the writing of uh, what others people feel are like subpar popular authors like Kuntz or mm-hmm. John Grisham or something like that. He's like, they're honest. So yeah. he's like, you, you, you don't get any real artifice. You don't get any pretension when you, when you read their stuff. Yeah. And he said, that's why tons of people read their stuff is because there's not a lot of pretense there. And maybe if we were willing, like we're talking about, to be more, even if we don't understand what it all adds up to, I feel like there's a yeah. lot of pressure with Christian film, with Christian artistry, like I have to land on a bumper sticker conclusion yeah. with all of this. And maybe if we were a bit more willing, as the the song implies, to say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. The song is not called... I can totally picture it, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. First thing I'm going to yeah. do. Um, so, yeah, it's like there, there you're is... You're going to go up to God and say, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, now that's a song right there. <laughs> Just throw that down. It's so, like, well, this guy is being pretty honest, I got to say. <laughs> not, not, not to toot my own horn here, but uh, toot my own horn. Yeah, exactly. Um, but... I, I do think if we were more willing to, yeah, we've t- you've talked several times about being willing to bring in these darker shades and being more honest about some of the some of the painful things. The thing I've shared that story a thousand times now at this point. I'm sure I've shared it at one point on more than one lesson about the the woman who had devoted her whole life to God, um, and and she was like doing the whole church thing and everything. And her son died, and it sent her into a tremendous depression. This is a a sermon illustration, so mm-hmm. I don't know if it's an actual true story, right. but it still illustrates a good point. Um, that when her son died, it sent her into a deep despair, a deep depression that lasted for years. And then, um, one night in like a rainstorm and, you know, flat tire, that whole deal, she finally just unleashes a torrent of profanity and obscenities at God Mm. and, and at all of that other stuff and just sort of lets, you know, releases the hounds as it were. And then... After that, after she had sort of exhausted herself, she said she felt this sort of calming, still voice, as it mm-hmm. were, say, that's the first time you've ever really spoken to me, and now we can talk. Yeah. And, you know, not only including the whole, like, the time spent in despair, but also the artifice beforehand just doing yeah. the church thing. And I think we ourselves should be bolder to plant our tears and to be more honest about, you know, you've... But I'm not going to shift this around, but you've always been, I feel like, really good at that and set a good example for myself and for listeners 
to to say like I'm gonna be truthful about mm-hmm. this situation that I deal with because there is freedom in truth telling. Yeah. And that as we share our stories, we, we do plant our tears to let others know that they are not necessarily alone in their pain. I shouldn't even say necessarily. They are not alone yeah. in their pain. They're not alone in their hardship, that even as the joy of the Lord is our strength, uh, there is also a time to mourn. Mm-hmm. And blessed are those who mourn, because there is comfort that is available to them. And we deny ourselves our comfort when we deny ourselves that process of mourning. And um, and I feel like we could all serve to be a bit more honest and open with ourselves and with those around us about, like, I just... Some some days I'm not making it. Like yeah. some it, sometimes some seasons feel like it's a fight against like me versus the day, and some days win. Yeah, you know, and and that doesn't mean ultimately that my faith is is not substantial or that it's not authentic. In fact, sometimes in those times where I've been more open about that, it's actually strengthened. Those like you were pointing out yeah. in your relationship that. It provides healing and it provides balm in yeah. the simple fact that I have been so open and released that. And yeah. we should feel encouraged to be more courageous in those kinds of things. And obviously there's context and you know, you don't want to just suddenly yeah. start airing all your dirty laundry to the yeah. strangers down the street. But in in good, safe, comfortable contexts, like try to try to be more open about the things that hurt you. And you know, and so I think the last thing to to mention, and this this is sort of a, a call out to uh, the listeners, which is in both of the movies we're talking about, these are characters who are putting, who are planting their tears into their music mm-hmm. uh, as a function of their faith as well. Um, well, not everybody's a musician, right. you know, and so the question that everybody needs to answer for themselves is, what does it look like? in my own life for mm-hmm. me to do this? Like, what does it look like to really, what is it? Let me take a look at the, the line here. Uh, let, let that pain become your inspiration. Yeah. Um, now, of course, there's more to life than just pain, and there are more, more than that should uh, inspire us. But, you know, one of, something that I, that I love is there was once a guy who was giving a talk at like a, at a youth conference, and he's a math teacher. And he said, there's only, he's like, you can't really put a, a Christian spin on a squared plus B squared equals C squared. He's <laughs> right. like, so right. what does it mean to be a Christian math teacher? Mm. You know, he mm-hmm. goes, aside from doing it to the best of my ability and then trying to be there for my students, right. there's not much right. else I can do, but there's a lot in that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just talking, that's just speaking professionally, you right. know? the idea of, of planting your tears, like where do you plant them and mm-hmm. what does it look like for something to grow? It could be in a relationship. It could be in your profession. It could be just some kind of general expression, but then obviously it's being honest with God, you know, is as the Sam Phillips, uh, character is saying, he's saying like one song that would let God know how you felt about your time here on earth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, That's a great that line. that almost sounds like you're gonna tell God off. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there is precedent for that sure. uh, in the Bible, and like, and like you said with your illustration, and as we see from the Bible, it's we're at least relating to Him, and sometimes you need to like get that out mm-hmm. so that the healing can actually start, and God can say, "All right, now that that's done, right, 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 you know, bring it in." You know, yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> Bring it in, guys. So it's going to be different for everybody. 
And I think it's something that you need to pray about, that you need to talk to other people about that you yes. really love. Like, mm -hmm. hey, this is something that I've been dealing with. I feel like I haven't been super honest mm -hmm. with myself or open about the stuff that I struggle with, uh, whether it be temptations or things that I've done wrong or just the way life has dealt with me yeah, uh, that right, I'm not super right. thrilled about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's different for everyone. Seek out uh, advice from people you trust Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, just, uh, keep praying about it. And when you pray, be very honest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and don't be afraid to strike whatever tone you're feeling at the time. So Amen. anyway, okay. So that's a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, but hopefully everybody enjoyed the episode. Um, you're always welcome to leave comments uh, on this post at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at morelessons. You can follow Reed. At Reed Lackey. At Reed Lackey. And he is also the host of the Fear of God podcast, <laughs> which is beginning to dwarf more than one lesson. That's not actually true. I've seen the numbers of both. But uh, but it's very popular. Uh, you know, the kids like it. Um, so, uh, so what's going on over at uh, the Fear of God these days? Well, uh, depending on when this airs, we either uh, have just had two days. or... Two oh, days from now. yes. We are coming up on our 100th episode. So right. in just a couple weeks... We will have our 100th episode. We're going to have a two-week extravaganza where we're going to be taking listener questions and having listeners respond to questions, and it's and going to then, be lots of fun. After that, mm -hmm. you will punish them for being involved with the show at all. <laughs> there is no punishment. There is no punishment whatsoever. It's just we, we, we're following up a landmark film of one variety with a landmark film of a completely different variety. That's yes. how I like to look at it, okay. Tyler. Well, that's a nice tease. And <laughs> listeners will be like, what does that mean? And then a few weeks they'll be like, oh. Oh, that's what that meant. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, so yeah, check those out. You've been, you've been watching a lot of movies that, uh, that I grew up with, you know, Jaws and oh, Predator absolutely. and oh, that sort yes. of thing. So oh, yeah. good stuff. But anyway. Okay, so uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Uh, thank Thank you, everybody, for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye.